welcome to a brand new episode of the Cinephiles Live. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm the outlaw, John Roca. Joined as always by my partner in crime on the Cinephiles, our partner in spite shall we say, for today's show. Right. Steve Morris. How are you, Steve? Or is it Steve Morris? Or maybe I'm wearing a mask, and this is all part of an elaborate ruse to yeah. trap you. <laughs> well, yeah. If you took off the mask and you're Karen underneath, I think that would be hilarious if you were to pull that off. Ah, that, would that would be, be awesome. I am thanking everybody who's joining us here right off the bat. We are diving into the Mission Impossible franchise today. This is something Steve and I have been discussing for quite some time. Let me move my fan out of the way to fix that. Uh, we were discussing it for quite some time, and it has finally come to fruition today. We are going to start. We're going to discuss the first one, but then we're going to talk about the franchise as a whole, dip into most of the installments, uh, and talk about where we think it might be going next with a part eight coming upon us here for dead reckoning but uh and for those of you who are watching the stream labs and super chats are open you see the stream labs address right above steve and i's head there it's also uh in the description of the video and i'll pin it in the chat in just a second but uh steve let's just start with your overall thoughts on the mission impossible franchise of course born out of the 1960s tv series starting the great starring the great peter graves and a sort of other fantastic actors like uh leonard nimoy one of our favorites from the world of star trek um but Tom Cruise taking it over in the 90s with Brian De Palma, uh, going to John Woo, going to J.J. Uh, Abrams, and then settling on Christopher McQuarrie, who's really kind of taken it to the next level as, dare I say, elevated thriller. So uh, what are your thoughts when you think about the franchise as a whole year with Mission Impossible? Well, first of all, I, th I was a huge, huge fan of the TV show. Yes. Like we, we talked yeah. about, you know the the rotation of shows that I watched because mm -hmm. you watched whatever was on so you know Bonanza and Perry Mason and obviously Star Trek but yeah. Mission Impossible is such a good TV show yeah and I absolutely loved it and I think it took me a little while to appreciate the film series which you know what the more I think about it this is a top-notch series mm -hmm. is is it is it the deepest movies ever made no it's not it is what it is but i think like you know compared to james bond as a series i think mission impossible is incredibly consistent frankly yeah yeah and it's fascinating to think about because it has been tom cruise through numerous decades here and through the ups and downs of his career right one of the one of the um standard or films that he makes is a Mission Impossible of uh, a film, and it has saved his career. It has kind of given his career new life, and it is now what seems to be the things that he does now for in his career. Long past are the days of Magnolia and Born on the Fourth of July. What we have now is a Tom Cruise at sixty-one years old who is very much dialed into doing half acting, half stuntman in his movies. I mean that motorcycle stunt was a nine-minute video they released before the movie even released. They weren't talking about the plot. They weren't talking about the story. They weren't talking about the nuance and the new tech. No, they're talking about this incredible motorcycle stunt. And that has been the hallmark of this series as well. Tom Cruise doing excellent work as the character of Ethan Hunt, but also these phenomenal stunts, Steve, from hanging off a plane to uh, you know jumping off. The, I mean, only Fast and Furious has gotten higher in terms of their stunts. They actually went to space in Fast 9. So your thoughts on uh, uh, the Mission Impossible when it comes to the stunts uh, and Tom Cruise's overall likability as a uh, lead for this series? Well, I, I think in this really weird way, 
Tom Cruise is the heir to Jackie Chan in terms of these huge stunts. Because the thing about, I, I think I've mentioned, I've never ever watched, a, I haven't seen a single Fast and Furious movie. So my right. opinion is completely irrelevant on those. But I don't get the sense that the point in the Fast and Furious movies is to really show that this real actor really did this thing. Right. And no. that's the that's... connection to Jackie Chan is that right. it part of the, the, there was always this meta thing with Jackie Chan, particularly because they showed the outtakes in the in the credit sequences of right. going, no, no, it's not just a character in the movie that did this thing. It's Jackie Chan, this actor. It's him doing the thing. And that adds the whole thing. And Tom Cruise has totally taken advantage of that. In particular, you mentioned that motorcycle stunt where it's like, or, or you know, where he's doing promos for the movie hanging off of a helicopter yeah, or yeah, jumping yeah. out of a plane or just going like, the whole point is this meta experience of, no, Tom Cruise is really doing this. Now, I think the safety procedures behind how Tom Cruise is doing this is probably a lot more dependable than what Jackie Chan's were, which is sure. like, I'm just going to jump off this fucking building. But like the but but that sense of the connection between Ethan Hunt doing this crazy thing in a movie and Tom Cruise doing this crazy thing as a stunt yeah. is is really really key. And, and and I think also, yes, we've had a whole bunch of directors, some of whom are really great directors. Mm -hmm. These are Tom Cruise movies. Yes, you know, hundred percent. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, you know, Brian De Palma, arguably at that time. Maybe on the tail end of Brian De Palma being Brian De Palma, Tom Cruise coming into his prime as an action star here with the first movie. And we have the carryover of um, the character that uh, Peter Graves played in the original series right. that John Voight is playing. And they make him a guy who, which, which caused a lot of anger. If people don't remember, it caused a lot, of anger, a lot of anger amongst those fans of the original series. He plays the same character that Peter Graves played, but he turned on the IMF. And, when, and so a lot of people were upset about that. But that was how you hand the torch to someone new here in um, in uh, Ethan Hunt with uh, with Tom Cruise playing it and how that all went about. And I'll tell you, the first one isn't in my top four, I don't think, of uh, of Mission Impossible movies. I think these final four are up there and then it's everything else in, in descending order from there. And so um, I, I, I think it was fascinating. And I don't think Tom Cruise had any idea that this was going to blow up the way that it has. But I would argue that if, as much as they're Tom Cruise films, and you're absolutely right on that, Steve, that he's the first person you think about when you think about Mission Possible movies. Christopher McQuarrie is one that is the been the person to come in and really make these matter, make these films matter, and have a response from the public that is beyond just the general reaction that you would get for a film like this. And if you look at, uh, I'll bring this up around. You look at the Rotten Tomato scores. The first film is 66. The second is 56. The third one is 71. Then we leap into the 90s with every other installment, which is almost unheard of for any action franchise or superhero series. 93% Ghost Protocol, 94% Rogue Nation, 97% Fallout, and 96% uh, Dead Reckonings. And those cinema scores have stayed a mm -hmm. consistent A. And up until Dead Reckoning, the box office of them have increased from 398, which is Mission Impossible 3, to 694, which is Ghost Protocol, 682, Rogue Nation, 791, Fallout, and we've taken a bit of a dip with Dead Reckoning at 567, $567 million. So clearly, Macquarie coming in has really been the, the closer, if for lack of a better term, if you look at baseball situations, 
preserving the lead, but adding, but making sure no other runs are scored and helping the uh, offense score even more runs with how well he's doing. So it's kind of, uh, I think you have to kind of create space that these films are as successful as they are now because of McCory uh, coming in. He's given it new life, kind of like The Rock has with the Fast and Furious franchise, which of course you haven't seen, Steve, but, but <laughs> seeing him come in and do this, I think has made, is an unusual thing about this franchise as well. Not many directors come in with that level of talent and knowledge about a spy thriller and elevate a franchise consistently in four installments. So I, I, I have a bunch of thoughts on this, and I have a Christopher McQuarrie story that I have to tell. But the, sure. the, the, the first thing is that I think from everything I know, and I had a buddy who wrote a Tom Cruise movie. Oh, nice. And so he, uh, this is Carl Geideshek who wrote um, Oblivion. Yes. Uh, and Carl's a great, great writer. And I won't go into details of what he shared, but it was very clear that when you were writing a Tom Cruise movie, you were writing a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> that it is that his personality overshadows everybody else yeah. that's working on that thing. And I think the key to Christopher McQuarrie, obviously a great writer, is an Academy Award winning yeah. writer. Yeah. a lot of experience is I think that he syncs with Tom Cruise in a yes. way that seems yeah. to work really, really well. And here is my story, which is I hung out with Chris McQuarrie a fair amount in the early 90s. Wow. Is uh, is that I had, uh, there's a, an actor who I've mentioned before on The Cinephiles who was in my play Brothers, and that's mm -hmm. Dylan Kussman, who was the redheaded guy that turned everybody in in Dead Poet Society. Right. And Dylan is in Public Access, which is Brian Singer and Chris McQuarrie's movie that was a big hit at Sundance in 92 or whatever year that was. Mm -hmm. And so I met Chris when he and Dylan were driving to Utah together and Dylan and I were acting in a play together. And so it ended up that I hung out with Chris and he was out in Berkeley when I was living up there mm -hmm. and, and Chris was out. And so whenever he was out, we would get together and go out drinking and he wasn't you know this is before public access hit it's before he was anybody and we right. were just hanging out a bunch and there was one night where we had been uh imbibing a bit and we <laughs> ended up as you do at two in the morning at the denny's in emeryville to get some food yeah and it was packed and christopher mcquarrie keeps talking smack as we're waiting to get a table like he just didn't have a sensor on, and I'm like, we are going to get killed. <laughs> you don't shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, but I did have a bunch of great times hanging out with him. He wouldn't remember. I'm sure he wouldn't remember me at all. There's like the, I think there's a, um, it's like a, I, I wish I could come up with a word for it. There's like a, a uh, reverse uh, proportional fame thing, which is that mm. you remember all of your experiences with famous people and remember that. Because it meant right. you, but they're not necessarily going to remember that they met you at this yeah. thing because everybody remembers because that person became famous, right. you know? Right, right, right. So anyway, uh, but he's a great guy and very fun. And um, the one other thing I wanted to say is that I think what happens in those last four movies, as you described, is totally it really settles into this is what this is. Yeah. This is, yeah, this yeah. is what it's about. Because the first film is very, very different in terms of tone. I watched it again recently. I watched it with Jackson because uh, I wanted to ask, like, let's introduce him to this. He was so stressed. He, like, stood up in the middle because he had never seen a thriller before. Yeah. And the okay. first movie is way more of a thriller. Yes. And yeah. and he stood up in the middle. He's like, this movie's going to give me PTSD because he's like, 
he never had that experience of watching a film where you don't know who to trust and you don't know what's going on yeah. and someone is trying to kill you and you're on the run trying to figure things out. He just didn't have that experience before. And I actually think, I will tell you just but one other thing about seeing that first movie, because I saw it when it came out and I saw it and this was when I was in the middle of film school. And I think I've described before what I will call uh, film school derangement sy syndrome, mm -hmm. which is that I was such a jerk when I went to see movies at that time in my life, because we were just, everything was about being judgmental. Right. And so I didn't appreciate this movie. And I will tell you the reason I didn't appreciate it when I first saw it, which is so stupid. And I'm so embarrassed to say, mm -hmm. but it is exactly the thing that I learned later on is not a fair criticism, particularly if you're working with your friends who have a script or a film, you right. are, which is that they didn't make the movie that I thought they should make. Right. Which is, I thought, because the first movie is you have the Mission Impossible team and it gets destroyed and now you're on the run. Yeah. And I, and I was so convinced that you needed to make just a regular mission first as mm -hmm. the first film and have right. them get destroyed in the second film that I rejected the entire movie. <laughs> I was like, this is the wrong film. And make and this I just, kind of film. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, I think I met you probably four or five years after this. Is like, mm. hopefully I became... The arrogance is I started to turn down after that. But like the idea that I would reject a whole movie because they made a choice that I didn't think was the right choice is so dumb. But yeah. that's where I was. And, and then watching it again, I'm like, you know what? Mission Impossible 1's good. It's a good film. Yes, it's a good, solid thriller. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, and it's the introduction of Ving Rhames, which I think at the time was also kind of coming up and getting known as well and the chemistry you have there. Jean Reno is a part of that mm -hmm. first film as well. We have the death of Emilio Estevez in the first film. Yeah. That, uh, and Kristen Scott Thomas, I believe as well in the first few moments of the film. So you have quite an interesting number of people. And I think it's Vanessa Redgrave who plays, yep. uh, the villain there, uh, and the list, the idea of the list. It's very much an episode of the series. And I think that's the difference here. The series was never like super dense with these insane kind of, um, levels of uh high-end approach to thriller like you have with mccord and the, so the first film coming out the way that it did was mirroring or trying to make an homage to that original series while also trying to do a good theatrically um well-respected thriller right and so you saw that in the first movie and it's so on it's tight it's concise the story works so well the as you as you said Jax was on the edge of his seat and because because the twists and turns make so much sense, combined with the action sequences, they all work so well. The action sequences don't become the only thing you remember about the movie. There's the turn. There's the um, uh, there's the surprise with the guy who was supposed to be his uh, who's his handler who shows back up again in Dead Reckoning. Uh, there's all these uh, the Henry Cherney, I think, is the actor's name. There's all these connections running through, and then the switches and the turns. Who do you trust? Who do you not trust? How do you escape going to these locations in Europe? All that stuff is is an essential part that's still a part of, or essential stuff rather, that's still a part of uh, these Mission Impossible movies. They've just expanded in ways that I think the show um, didn't have the budget probably and didn't have necessarily the intention to do uh, within it for sure. And um, yeah, that's why I think the first one is still good. It's still good to go back to. I see some people saying we were giving a lot of love to the first one. No, it, it deserves a lot of love. It's It's a good beginning. I just think these last four, for me personally, these last four are like a whole other level. So, yeah. well, two two things. One, frankly, 
when you compare it, like, you know, we've all been down on the Marvel movies lately or mm. criticisms about Star Wars properties and how they haven't delivered. That's not the case in the Mission Impossible series. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't think the first one is, is, as you say, is as good as the last four. Right. But it's totally good. It is yes. a good film. It's yeah. not where you walk up and, you know, out of, you know, whatever recent Marvel disappointment or and just go, man, that didn't work. That's not yeah. the case here. The other thing I think is interesting about the first film is I think you still have the cocky Tom Cruise persona, <laughs> which was so much a part of yeah. who he was as a movie star, right. you know, from Top Gun and all that stuff. And that persona goes away by the third movie. Right. Like, he, I think they settled in and figured out who Ethan Hunt is. And yeah. it isn't so much that cocky Tom Cruise persona. It is, this is what has to happen. I care about my people. I care about doing the right thing. And I'm just yeah. not going to quit in getting getting whatever has to be done, done. Right. And I think another aspect of this as we move forward, Steve, is um, uh, if we, we want to talk about the second one, we can. But like the introduction of Simon Pegg, I think that's been kind of, you know, there's a thing in sports, and I compare it to sports because this is what I know, but there's a thing in sports where you trade for a star player, and then they add an extra player because, you know, like, they want to match the salary, and they kind of want to get rid of the guy anyway, and then that person becomes like an underground star, and I think Simon Pegg has been kind of the underground star of these movies because in that, when he comes in, I think it's Mission Possible 3, when he comes in, he's very funny, and plays, how can I say, it plays with the Tom, with Tom Cruise so well. Like, t he is quite happy to surrender the alpha status to Tom Cruise in his franchise. Simon Pegg is essentially the lead in all the Simon Pegg movies. But in this in this franchise, he's quite happy to take the backseat, be a little bit of a, of a bumbler. And in a way, like you just said, and I think it ties to your point, it kind of humanizes Ethan Hunt to have yeah. this relationship with Simon Pegg. Of course, him and Bing Rames, that's consistent throughout. But Simon coming in the third film gives you a new color and has a new vulnerability. It's also the film where he gets he gets married to Michelle Monet and has this relationship with Michelle Monet, which I think also humanized him. So I think you're right in that they realize we can't keep going down this route with Ethan. We want to give him some real vulnerability, some real connection with uh, humanity in connection with the people he works with and that's going to make us a unique um franchise or a unique ip that we have a lead like this who has these friendship relationships and these female relationships that carry weight for him in his life um and the fact that they consistently carry the michelle monahan relationship all the way through fallout where she moves on to west bentley and he kind of gives his blessing and is happy for her and all of that I thought was great. It was a nice little storyline underneath. But the Simon Pegg aspect of it all, what are your thoughts on him coming into the series? So I think that it might be that the intention in the first three mm -hmm. was not to care too much about repeating the supporting cast. Because like Ving Rhames isn't really in the fourth one very much. No, no. Right. So, you know, they, they, they kind of switch around. And I think... The both Bing Rames and Simon Pegg to me are critical to why these movies work. Their yeah. their um, relationship with each other, how each of them relate to and humanize Ethan Hunt, yeah. with Bing Rames being the more solid, like close friend. It's like the older Simon, brother type thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
and Simon Pegg just, you know, of course being comic relief, but also being this sort of solid force going forward. I think that, I think that's really key to, and it was funny cause I, I haven't, I didn't get time to rewatch all of them before yeah. we did the show, but I did watch the first one. I watched the third and the fourth. That's what and I skipped the second one. Yeah. Um, and I'd seen dead reckoning in the theater a couple of months ago. So that's sort of familiar to me. Um, but I really miss Bing Rains when he is not there. Like, I really want him to be part of the team. I also think, by the way, I love Jeremy Renner's addition mm. in the fourth film, third right. film, fourth film. Yeah. I think, I think that is a, you know, is a perfect other member of the team to sort of fill out the team with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Yeah. And the big thing, and, and we should talk about this as we go through the films. That the different periods of Tom Cruise's life is just fascinating when you look at the films and you bring up Jeremy Renner, Steve. I think this is a great segue into that. Is that at the beginning, as I said, the first film, this is Tom Cruise coming into his own as an action star, seeing that there's a potential for him to have a whole new uh, um, a career tr track or path uh, for him to go on. And this is the important you get John Woo. In, in Mission Impossible 2, and that's the worst of them all, in my opinion. And I love John Woo. He's got a new film coming out soon called Silent Night. Um, and him in this, you would think this would be a perfect marriage, but it becomes way too out there and way yeah. too stylized, and you kind of lose the plot of what is supposed to be happening there. And then you come into 3, and so, so Cruz is in that place of like, oh, this is cocky crew, like, Hubris Cruise, Cocky Cruise, not just the character, but Cocky Cruise, as you mentioned earlier, Steve. Now we go into three. Three is after the Oprah situation, after jumping on mm. the couch, after the Katie Holmes stuff, after him being antagonistic with Matt Lauer about Scientology. And right. who knew we'd turn on Matt Lauer? But like this whole situation there was he was in a different place. So it was all that film and what we covered, Tropic Thunder. Those two films, Mission Impossible 3 and Tropic Thunder, are what saved Tom Cruise from sliding into like this canceled place, for lack of a better term, because how people felt he was getting way too out there with his argumentativeness, his, his um, abrasiveness over the Scientology stuff uh, and, and the Katie Holmes situation, that it, it was incredible to see Mission Impossible 3 come in. They give him, J.J. Abrams comes in. It's a completely new, different approach. It's got Michelle Monaghan as his wife, as you said, as we said, Simon Pegg. So there's a whole other approach to this, and it saves him. Now, there were rumors that Tom wanted to walk away from this franchise, mm. and the rumors that Paramount was maybe considering replacing him. So that's why they brought in Jeremy Renner. And they brought in Renner to kind of try him out. Remember, Renner also replaced Jason Bourne in uh, the Bourne... Oh, I can't remember what that film is. Is it uh, legacy? They, is it? Yeah, remember. more legacy. Yes, more legacy. They come in and he was going to replace Jason Bourne possibly as well. So Renner had this shot at both of these franchises. And there's a reason why he's essentially the second lead of that film and just as alpha as Ethan. And he gets the best of Ethan in their exchanges and in their physical exchanges as well in the film. So there's possibilities. So Tom was very moving on. But then that didn't happen. Renner kind of fell out of favor and Tom re-embraced being the lead of the Mission Impossible films. And those have skyrocketed ever since so it's just a fascinating track to watch tom cruise's life here now that he is back to being a beloved superstar certainly top gun maverick really went a long way to me to establishing that love for tom cruise again 
So here he is at, at 61 years old, having ridden all the highs and lows of his life, but the constant has been Mission Impossible. It's interesting. I want to go back to the directors because it is interesting that the first four are De Palma, obviously a famous director, and it is a very much a De Palma movie, like particularly oh, yeah. when you get to so. Breaking into Langley. And the the thing that really? I, I I loved, and I, I I know I've told this story before, but in um, Carlito's way, when De Palma screens the pool scene for the studio, and they say, which is the writers with him, and the the it's the writer's favorite scene. And the studio says, this is way too slow. And De Palma says, absolutely, you're 100% right. I totally agree. Way too slow. I'm going to cut it down. They walk outside. The writer goes, how could you? That's the best scene of the movie. It's not too slow. And he said, no, no, no. They're totally right. But when they say that it's too slow, what they mean is it's not slow enough. Because I didn't, (laughs) in every detail, show every single thing. So you totally understood the circumstances. And so he actually added time in and added shots in, screened it again. And the studio said, thanks so much for cutting down that scene. It's way better now that it's faster. And he said, no, thank you. Your note was the perfect note. I think the Langley scene is exactly like that, which is that what De Palma is so good at is showing all the details of this thing. Yeah. And then they do a weird thing, which is they go after three more interesting directors with J.J. Abrams and Brad Bird and John Woo. And I think I feel bad for John Woo. And I'm really curious about the next film because I feel like, he did this amazing thing with the Hong Kong films. And yeah. then, as it happens, then America calls and says, can you come do that super cool thing that you did in the Hong Kong movies, but do them in American movies? And you get what I will say are kind of, it feels like his heart's not in it. He's, yeah. he's, he's like, yeah, we're going to have some doves and we're going to have some people with two guns and things like that. And, and I feel like it almost, like maybe he was ready to evolve or move on as a director but then he got called to America to reproduce what he had done previously in Hong Kong, yeah. you know, and, and, and I definitely think, you know, too, and, you know, obviously we, you know, there's the Travolta one, whatever, I forget what it's called now, Face oh, Off, and, yeah, 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 no, but the other one, the, the, I forget what it is. Uh, okay. It's Travolta and Christian Slater, is that what it is? Broken Arrow. Yes. Broken Arrow, yeah. It's like, you know, and then I actually think, because I have very mixed feelings about J.J. as a director, yeah. Because J.J. doesn't always care about delivering on a story, you know? J.J.'s like, here's a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah. Wasn't that cool? And then you get to the end and suddenly you go, wait, what What happened? Like, why? what does this mean? <laughs> you know? And I think Mission Impossible 3 is not like that. It really does no. have a fairly tight story. And, and, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is amazing. And then I think Brad Bird does a great job with 4 before yeah. you get to Macquarie and all those films. Yeah, I'm sorry not to mention Brad Bird earlier. Thank you for bringing that up, Steve. You're absolutely right. Uh, not a guy who does not go into live action that often, uh, and certainly Tomorrowland wasn't that good of a film. But this is is uh, Mission Possible. His Rogue Nation is excellent, and so it's a yeah. really good. And you could argue that that's what kind of is the template that Macquarie followed. Like, yeah, Brad Bird so. showed what was possible with this series. And McCore is like, oh, if we can do this and you'll let me do this, then I'll come on and let's create this um, going forward. So, yeah, that's an excellent point. And I love three. I really, really love three. I love that we get a, 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 a love story that does not feel um, shoved in or um, um, feels uh, undercooked. You totally buy that he has this affection for her. 
their their connection, their chemistry is totally there. The love he has for her is totally there. And then you get this fantastic performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is arguably, in my opinion, the greatest villain in the Mission Impossible series. Uh, and Billy Crudup is fantastic as well. Lawrence Fishburne. And the action sequences on the bridge are stellar and, great. and funny to make fun of because of the blow where he goes into the car. Like all these things just work so well. But in the end, he realizes I can't put her at risk. I can't. I've got to let this thing that I love go because I want to save the world when I need to save the world. And I've yeah. tried doing this, but I can't do that. And I may have relationships down the road. But I, I know that this is someone I care about and I want to protect her. And that is something you just do not see in in in, in action franchises. And I find that to be I find this film to be sometimes criminally overlooked by the Mission Impossible lovers because it is a damn good film. And you're right about J.J. He doesn't always knock it out of the park, but he certainly does with three. There's a humanity and a, and a I don't know, just a real a believable tension and fear that something important can be lost here with his relationship with Michelle Monet. Well, I think, you know, it's funny. We talked in Wolf of Wall Street about mm -hmm. we were comparing um, Leo to Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one is a great actor who also is a movie star. Another is a movie star who also happens to be a great actor. Yeah. And in three, you really see that. When, when, when mm -hmm. her life is being threatened and Tom Cruise is begging and crying and then... Ooh watching the woman he loves he thinks get killed it's just that's full-on great acting from tom cruise yeah hugely right. vulnerable and desperate and all of the layers being played it's really good and it, dude philip seymour hoffman oh, i like uh, what a loss that guy is yeah. because you think about the late 90s and early 2000s and the roles he was playing in Boogie Nights and yeah. Lebowski in uh, Patch Adams and all these odd sort of yeah. quirky characters. Yeah. And then to be able to come in and I, I, I would call it holding space. Mm. Like he's able to hold his space as a villain and yeah. be so powerful and so just like confident and scary as fuck, yeah. you know? And like that, that guy, I wouldn't have thought that he had that gear. And then later on, we discovered that, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman has maybe an infinite number of gears that he yes, played. Right. I mean, he's so good in that movie. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's such a discovery for J.J. and for the casting people to bring him in to play that role. And what Philip did with it, he, again, this is an actor, as you said, Steve, this is an actor with multiple, um, the ability to play multiple types of roles, but he brings with it a a um independent actor level type approach to it exactly which gives more weight to what's happening so you're right so tom can kind of show you hey i am a good fucking actor even within this construct of this action film there's this scene where i'm going toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of the best actors to ever walk the planet and both of us are holding our own with each other yeah. like it is such a potent scene when he's like, wait, 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 just you're just you're so in it. Uh, I, maybe you should hold off on showing that one to Jackson because he'll totally have PTSD after that scene. That, <laughs> back and forth. I mean, I fucking broke up in the film when I saw yeah. it. And, you know, seeing uh, Carrie Russell's death in the opening was heartbreaking as well. And the way she died was so brutal. All of that just it, it, it is such a unique film in the franchise in that way, because although it is connected, 
it feels like its own thing completely. And I and I kind of love that about the third film. No, I I I, I, I I think it's really good. And I particularly go like, I wish, I wish I was there to hear the conversation. There's this shot. It's after the attack on the bridge, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is flying away in the helicopter. <laughs> He's like holding on and just looking down at Tom Cruise. And I just, you know. I, I'm assuming, of course, he was he had a line on him and he was safe, but it does really seem like it's Philip Seymour Hoffman leaning yeah. out of the helicopter. And to be able to act at the level that he's acting with that look in a open helicopter flying away from that bridge is just like, I just wish I could have heard the conversation with him and J.J. Abrams and Tom of like, okay, you want me to do what? Okay, all right, I'll do that. Um, and still bring the fucking, face. yeah, ah, so good. Yeah, and as I said, I think that's what makes him the greatest villain of the series because he's the only one that I ever felt could get the best of him, of of um, Tom Cruise, of Ethan Hunt. I never felt that about uh, John Voight. Didn't feel that about oh, I forget the actor who plays him. The first one, the guy from um, the guy from Moulin Rouge. Oh no, Doug Ray Scott. Doug Ray. I never felt that about Doug Ray Scott. Uh, I didn't feel that about uh, any of the other villains, Sean Harris, Michael Nyquist, whatever. I never felt that about it. Even the AI didn't scare me from the most recent one the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman did because there was a there was a completely sociopathic ruthlessness yeah. to him. To, life meant nothing to him. Money is all he cared about. And those are the scariest people who have power for sure. Um, he's he's frankly he's, sort of he's fr frankly sort of Heath Ledger Joker like in the sense that hmm. he always has a plan. He's always a step ahead. Yeah. Um, the only the other villain I think for me Henry Cavill is great. I, I, oh yeah, <laughs> Henry Cavill's awesome. Totally different way, but yeah, just great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, let's take a quick break, Steve. We're at the thirty minute mark. Help us to put some ads in for our podcast here. So we're going to take a, just a quick break, and we're going to jump back into the Mission Impossible franchise uh, after this. Did you want to sing? I feel like you wanted. To I kind of wanted to. I really <laughs> want to. I was just about to go. Dun 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 dun. Dun 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 dun. <laughs> By the way, we should say yes. Among the, I'm going to put that in the top ten theme songs of all time. One hundred percent. Maybe top five. Yes. One. I put that in the Hawaii Five O in my top five, and no one has ever taken those two out of there. Yeah. Maybe even SWAT. The '70s were a great time for theme songs. For God's sakes, you're right. Because in every variation, that's another part of this with the franchise, right? We've seen and heard every variation that you can't. I mean, we've, we've gone from Limp Biscuit to U2 doing versions of that um, famous theme and working it into their original songs for the soundtracks of these movies, and they've always worked. And we should talk about these intros. Let's talk about these intros, Steve. Do you like the intros for these Mission Impossible, like the opening Mission Impossible scenes that lead us into the title cards? Kind of James Bondish as well. Um, what are your feelings about these intros? And do you have a favorite? Oh, uh, I don't. I don't know if I could come up with a favorite. Uh, okay. My least favorite might be the Dead Reckoning. I don't understand, and I think it was added later why we had to do the whole submarine thing. It's yes. so yeah. completely unnecessary for the film and kind of bizarre. You yeah, know, we don't have Tom. We don't. I just didn't quite get it. But, but I do think it totally is honoring the TV show, which is which is great. Of like. And this is the thing about Mission Impossible as opposed to James Bond, mm -hmm. which is part of the key to Mission Impossible is, and particularly from the TV show, is like, yeah. you're never going to know the whole plan. Yeah. Like, the whole point is you're always going to be behind trying to figure things out as yeah. 
as they have put in all these machinations, you don't know how it's going to work. And I think the opening and the use of the song, the use of the fuse, the whether or not you show images from the movie that you're showing in the opening, all that stuff I really like. Yeah, yeah. Just to remind people, uh, the Mission Impossible openings go like this. Uh, The first one, obviously, uh, they're they're, um, going in and breaking into the scene with the elevator and all of that. They're trying to get that list and they fail getting the list. The second one is him climbing that mountain and then throwing right. the throwing the sunglasses and explodes into fire. Uh, the third one is the prison break. Uh, right. The fourth one um, is the plane. The fifth one uh, um, uh, with the plutonium exchange there, and the sixth one um, uh, was good. But yeah, like you're right. There's no there's no uh, Tom Cruise, right? It, it, no, it's, it's oh sorry, totally... sorry. Mi six is yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, well, in Dead Reckoning, the submarine is totally disconnected from our characters. Right, know? right, yeah, exactly. So it's a little frustrating, but we'll see. We'll see how they, they go about to... Well, uh, Vincent Zawada saying, uh, huge credit to Cruz letting Hoffman shine. Yeah, well, yeah, I've, you, know, you don't cast him if you're not going to let him do his thing, right? And then you, you, it is a Tom Cruise film, but I think he knows, like any good hero knows, you're only as good as your villain. you got to have a damn good villain. And yeah. I would argue that the reason these films... Are succeed as well as they do is they find really good actors to play these villains um and it's not like your standard even isai morales who five people hadn't really been thinking about in quite some time him coming in i thought he was fantastic he was great yeah i think i i you know it's again this conversation of what makes a movie star mm. i think tom cruise gets it yeah in, in this stage of his life more than maybe anyone else has and and one of the big things is you know, you hear all these stories. I haven't heard these necessarily about Tom Cruise, but of yeah. of stars like going, well, I need to have all the funny lines or give me more moments. And don't yes. let that other, any any way that somebody else shines take, yeah. takes away from me. Right. And Tom Cruise knows that's not true. Right, right. Because yeah. he's confident enough in himself to know that people are coming to see his movies. Yeah, if you're on a set, and certainly I've heard stories from my fellow actor friends uh, where the star of the show is uh, trying to take lines from you because you're one-upping that person on the screen that's an incredibly insecure person with very low self-esteem you can get angry at them but it's probably better and stronger for you to just feel sorry for them. and you learn that as you get older and i like that tom understands that all of these people have to have their moments to shine because it helps elevate the whole franchise and people love all these characters and steve we should go through some of these actors that have been a part of this as well um, with these movies, uh, you know, the first one we talked about, Bing Rames. Um, we talked about, um, uh, or I think we've mentioned everybody in the first one, I think. So with the second one, you have Doug Ray Can, I, can I just say on the on yeah. the first one real quick? Yeah. The one thing I don't love in that movie is John okay. Voight. I just yeah. don't love John Voight in that movie. I agree. He seems I, I, out of place in that film. The the whole twist with him and be, I just like, it don't, I don't care and I don't really buy it. I, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know the story if Peter Graves, because Peter Graves is still alive. When that film was made, yeah, that they either they didn't a they didn't want to bring him back because they thought he was too old and it would make sense, or b Peter refused to do it because his character he never wanted his mm. character to be a traitor because it, he had been the lead of the TV franchise. So maybe he felt it wasn't the right thing for him. Certainly, Peter Graves not a man to lack for respect for his role. So uh, maybe that would have been the situation there. Right. Maybe you guys who are watching can let us know what happened there. I, I, I don't know, but. With the second one, you have Tandy Newton, who is, of course, still around and kicked yeah. ass in Westworld. Richard Roxburgh, that's who plays the, the, the hitman or the, the lackey to uh, Dougray Scott. 
in this one. You have a very young Brendan Gleeson in this film as well, who I totally forgot was in this movie. Uh, movie. Right. And Raid uh, Sherbeja, who always plays Russians in every film that he's in. Three, I think we've covered everybody that's in three. Well, we should add Maggie Q and Jonathan Reese Myers as being part of his team. I thought right. Maggie Q added some nice class and obviously mm -hmm. incredibly gorgeous. And Jonathan Reese Myers was a nice kind of like, what do you mean? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? What's it all about? You know, the kind of younger energy poking at him the whole time I thought was great as well. Um, and in the fourth one, we have um, Renner, Peg, and Paula Patton coming in and a very young Leah Sadu. People forget this. Leah Sadu is who Paula Patton fights for the jewels in that hotel room. She right. is, of course, comes on and blue is the warmest color. She was in a number, she's been in a number of recent films as well and kind of coming into her own as an actress and as a lead actress and as a well-respected actress uh, in the world here um, as well. But Paula Patton, I thought, did a nice job. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like her a lot and I, I would have liked to see more of her. I don't, she doesn't come back in any of the others, does she? She doesn't, no. And it's kind of the thing. And because we go to the fifth one, Rebecca Ferguson, or the fourth one, rather, uh, yeah, fourth one, no, fifth one, sorry. Rebecca okay. Ferguson comes in for the fifth one here um, and really solidifies herself. Alec Baldwin comes in in the fifth one, who's fantastic in this, and Sean Harris coming in as um, as the main villain in this one. I thought he did a nice job with that. I mean, this yeah. is another thing they're doing is that we get to, you, you have the bosses, mm -hmm. a parade of bosses like Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin and yes. Lawrence Fishburne and yeah. Billy Crudup, who we see, like, they just like we're gonna just plug in another one of these great actors, and they're yeah. And, and I mean, you would love to have this gig. I would love to have this gig. It's like you're gonna come in for four or five days' work, do 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 a few scenes with Tom Cruise, and that's it. And yeah. it's like, of course, Anthony Hopkins is gonna, you know, of course, Fishburne will do it. Like, yeah. And they're meet always my, great. Me, my quota, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Okay, yeah. me, come on. Yeah, and in the fifth one, as you were saying, Steve, which you love so much, Henry Cavill in here is the villain. Uh, uh, Rebecca Ferguson returns, Sean Harris, but Angela Bassett comes in as the new boss. As a part of this, Michelle Monaghan returns, as I mentioned, and Alec Baldwin remains and is now where he had been against him. He is for Tom Cruise in defending the IMF, much like Ray Fiennes uh, was against Bond and then becomes comes right. on board with Bond here in the Bond franchise as well uh, with Mission Impossible Fallout. Dead Reckoning introduces um, uh, Vanessa Kirby into this one as well. Oh, no, actually, she was in the last one, but she carries over into this one. And we have Haley Atwell coming in and Plum, uh, Palm Clementiev. Uh, and as I mentioned, Isai Morales and the return of Henry Cherney. We From the first film, he right. comes back in and has, has a damn good part in this uh, most recent installment as well. So a great list of actors, a fantastic yeah. list of actors who are delivered every time. I loved Haley Atwell in the mm. most recent one. I thought, I mean, I always love her. She's great. Yes, um, she and, I, and I thought she just... What's really smart, and I wonder if some, to some degree this is Chris McQuarrie, is like one of the the keys to ensembles and whatever we might think of Brian Singer, Usual Suspects is a really interesting ensemble. Yes. And one of the keys is that is to have each of these people be a different flavor. Mm -hmm. And you bring in the, and because, and, and I bet Tom Cruise understands this as well, is if you give him a different flavor to play against, it allows him to do different things. And yeah. Haley Atwell, totally a different flavor, and it allows Tom Cruise to have a different relationship with this person, you know, just as obviously Benji and Bing Rames, like those are different things that he gets to play against, yeah. and that adds to the to the beautiful tapestry of the film. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Bing Rames, Tom Cruise, and Simon Pegg are the banana split, 
And all the actors that come in are the exactly. dropping and the nuts and the yeah. whatever whipped cream. Uh, and so it, it, you've still got this foundation that's always going to taste good, but you want to try new flavors on it and see if it'll add a little bit more to what's already great that's there. So, yeah. To totally stupid digression, but I listened to the David Chang podcast too. Oh, okay. talked about him before. Great chef. Yes. He was, they were, he went off on the banana split. He was like, why would, the last thing I want when I'm eating my ice cream is some cold <laughs> hunk of banana. It, but this is terrible. And I, I, I respect him. He's a great chef. I love I his love food. It. Entirely wrong. Banana split is delicious. Yes. 100%. David, you're wrong. I hate to break yeah. it. Yeah. Or we don't agree with your opinion. Uh, let's hit some of these Streamlabs Super Trads. Vincent Zawada saying, oh yeah, we already said that one. Sorry, Sketchcraft saying, people forget how long Mission Impossible has been around. Both the show and its theme song predate Star Wars. Would love a film series set in the distant future using the creator's Sid Mead art design. Ooh, that's, ooh, man, if you're talking about the most recent creative movie, that would be an interesting approach. I don't know if you can do Mission Impossible in the future because they're kind of tiptoeing into that with this ai storyline from dead reckoning steve well so, yeah. <laughs> yeah well maybe maybe not <laughs> um i think i i actually think i always like the idea of taking this idea from here and using that same structure and using it in a different period or a different mm -hmm. format you know seven samurai being an example of like oh, yeah. yeah we can do one in science fiction we can do one sure. With bugs and bugs life, we can do one anime. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I think the idea of like we have the the crack team that can do all these things and action fight scene manipulation technology. Yeah, it totally could work in a science fiction setting. Why not? Yeah, I just feel like this these this series is grounded. It has there's a grounded nature to it. Whereas, yeah. like you said, you've never seen Fast and the Furious. There's really after the first two or three films, it stops becoming grounded and becomes ridiculous. And they all become, in essence, superheroes that are incapable of concussions. Uh, and it becomes ridiculous at times. So when I go see a Fast and Furious film, I'm not looking to be challenged, right? I'm looking to have some fun, turn my brain off, see some cool fucking racing, and hear some witty witty repartee between the characters, right? Right. Uh, and and one-note deliveries, or one-note performances that are just like, uh, you know, all that. But when <laughs> wait, I wait, go, wait. What was the performance again? <laughs> And that's Michelle Rodriguez and Ving Rain. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Ben Diesel. Um, not The Rock usually, but you know, but even they were smart enough to realize: look, we got to bring people with some level, like Charlie Theron. These other actors that have been a part of that franchise, Kurt Russell, who have more depth to what they bring to these roles to kind of balance things out from some of the one-level, one-note performances you get from some of the main cast here. So. They were smart, but with with I go into a Mission Impossible film, I'm looking to be in, intellectually challenged. I'm looking to see some phenomenal settings. I'm looking to see an incredible stunt, but a stunt that works organically in the movie, right? Like in the last in the uh, Fast Furious Nine, not the ten, not the most recent one, but nine, they went into space, and the way they went into space was ridiculous and stupid. But you're like, fuck it, it's a dumbass movie. I'm going to go with it. But if they did that with Mission Impossible, I think it would ruin the, the franchise. I think it would just become something else then, and then you have to lower your expectations. Um, and uh, I think that's why this film, the most recent one, wasn't as well-received, because there were a number of people who didn't feel that they got the quality out of it that they had gotten in the previous three installments. I think the grounded nature of it is a really, really good point. And I think part of the key to that grounded nature 
is Tom Cruise really doing those stunts? Yes, you know, 100%. Is, is that you feel like, well, that's kind of real. I mean, because he yeah. did it. So so it's kind of a real thing. I think, um, by, the, by the way, uh, the subject has come up on the Cinephiles before of the two actors that we often said could take the best beating in Hollywood, and mm. they were Harrison Ford yes. and Mel Gibson. That we talked about how, how what they're capable of doing, and I think Tom Cruise should be on that list. And you mentioned the the concussions, yeah. Like watching, I mean, they, they they ride the edge of like, come on, you are not getting up from that car crash, that punch, that fall, that whatever. But he keeps getting up, and man, his uh, his healing factor is they push it right to the edge of I do not believe that this is possible that you could still be getting up and still fighting. And again, I go back to. Also, one of he and Daniel Craig, the two greatest mu- runners on, in film. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the, just the thing here, right? <laughs> it's really just what he's doing. And yeah, Craig's is more of a, it cruises is more of a chopping through the air, uh, and I, I love that. Now, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and everyone makes fun of the Tom Cruise run, right? Like uh, in, in what he does, and he has to put that into his, to his films. Um, we should. Talk about the woman aspect, the female aspect of these movies here. We mentioned a number of the actresses that have been through this uh, franchise. Emmanuel Bayart, I think, is the first actress. Uh, but then we go into Tandy Newton, we go into Michelle Monaghan, we go to Paula Patton, we go into Rebecca Ferguson and now Haley Atwell. Um, how do you feel about how the women roles are have evolved, shall we say, for lack of a better term? Um, throughout uh, the series here? And uh, do you feel like maybe it's a product of its time? Like in the 90s, she was basically kind of, um, how can I say this, an attachment to Tom Cruise, like a, you know, kind of like a handbag or whatever. But in the second one, she's very much the focus, Tandy Newton. In the third one, he's married to her. So it's an, it, all this kind of stuff's going on. But then we get Rebecca, which seems to be the equal of Tom Cruise. Paula Patton certainly is a badass, uh, and Maggie Q as well. But like, it's Rebecca coming in that kind of uh, takes it to a whole new level, and we might be opening the door to another relationship, possibly with the Haley Atwell situation. So, what are your thoughts on how women have been portrayed and how they've played their part in the franchise? I remember when I was working on the DVDs of the James Bond movies, and when I find and I'm watching them back to back to back, and I just suddenly went, "Oh, these are all like the same movie," you know. <laughs> and that, and in particular, there will be the Russian spy, the evil spy that's yeah. a woman that he's going to be opposed to at the beginning of the film. And then as it goes on, they will team up. And then, of course, they'll end up together. Right. And I am really glad that for the most part, Mission Impossible has avoided that so that you have. Yes, he has some romantic entanglements in the course of the series. Sure. But mostly it's like, well, there's true love in three. Yeah. And then it's it's not like, okay, who's going to be the new beautiful woman each time? I mean, yes, there are beautiful women in the film, but right. not because it's important to have him romantically involved. It's, it's just because we have films filled with beautiful people, you yeah. know? So, like, I, I actually think, and it is interesting, too, because there are certainly elements of the Mission Impossible movies. There is someone in the IMF or in the government that has betrayed the IMF force and therefore they're on the outs in some way. And then they have to do these ridiculous things without resources in order to be the only people that that's basically the structure of most of the movies. But I don't feel, it doesn't feel repetitive to me. And I guess that it goes into a weird thing of like, 
if you deliver on what we expect from a Mission Impossible movie and you do everything really well, yeah. the fact that it's repetitive doesn't matter, as opposed to like a movie like Die Hard 2, mm. where it's like, and here we have that same joke, and here yeah. we have that same yeah. moment, because that's what people want, and it just, I loved it when it came out, but then when you know, watching it as a, a grown-up, and go like, I, I can't even watch it, because it's so repetitive, you know? Well, why do you think... I want to go back to something you brought up maybe 30 minutes ago, the idea of John Woo in this franchise. Why do you think that second one didn't work? Do you think I'm right that they just went too stylistic and it kind of removed that groundedness that you think, and we both think, is essential to the success of this series? Because um, you know, my belief is that John Woo's Eastern aesthetic doesn't work with Western actors. I I've never seen any of his films that 100% works uh, that's American um, because his Eastern aesthetic is not how Westerners naturally act or are not cool in the same way that Eastern actors are cool when they're doing the things that they're doing in John Woo's movie, movies. And he did find success after he left Hollywood and went back to, uh, to do his movies on the other side of the, of the world. Uh, and this is the first one that's coming up here with Joel Kinnaman that has been released on American shores in quite some time. So do you think that this was maybe just a kind of the wrong aesthetic for it at all? Or what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, uh, if Steve Jones were on this show right now, he would be defending the beauty of Hard Target starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, but I would not. <laughs> but, it's uh, a funny uh, movie, don't get me wrong. Yeah, but sure. I, I, it, it's, a, it's a good question. So I didn't rewatch two. So it's okay. not fresh in my mind. I did watch like some recaps and a couple of scenes. I, but I do think it goes back to that thing you were saying about the movies being grounded. Mm. And John Woo, in his most stylized, is not grounded. No, That's right. part of the point. The point is you're watching ballet. And yes. you're watching really violent ballet often and really intense ballet. Yeah. But it, it, it goes, it occupies this other aesthetic space mm -hmm. that I don't think quite matched. And I, and I also, I blame Tom Cruise's long hair and that opening scene on the rock climbing because it's yeah. because it's going for aesthetics in a way right. and not emotion or the complexity and the twists and turns and all of that stuff that we've been talking about what we like is that yeah. it's not that the aesthetics of the mission impossible movies they're beautiful movies i mean to yes. be real honest whether it's the aquarium scene in the first movie or you know unbelievable scenery in all of them and you know in, i mean they they look great yeah but they're not ballet you know which is what i think the john woo aesthetic i think it's just a mismatch i think yeah 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 i think at the end of the day yeah <laughs> the long hair plus Joe gray scott's not really intimidating anybody uh and it's kind of crazy to think that there's an alternate universe where he was wolverine because uh it was on this set doing this movie that in that he injured himself uh, mm. and couldn't do Wolverine, and so they had to go find somebody, and that's where they found Hugh Jackman. And I'm not sure if I'm right on this. I'm not sure if Dugray Scott recommended Hugh or somebody who was already a part of the Marvel Universe. Or sorry, the uh, the X-Men Universe recommended Hugh. I don't remember. <coughs> but that's kind of how that all went about. So there is an alternate universe where uh, that happens uh, as well, which is really interesting to think about. Um, what do you... Do you how can I say this correctly? Do you, I'll just strip it away. Do you have a favorite stunt 
in all of these movies? Or what what stunts stick out for you that like you think, man, now that's something incredible. I so there there are a bunch of great ones. I mean, like mm-hmm. I said, the aquarium in the first one aesthetically, oh, yeah. it's not a it's not a huge stunt, but I mean it's a big stunt for nineteen ninety six or whatever, but aesthetically it's super, super cool. I think it seems to me the Burj Khalifa, I think that's the name of the super tall building in four. Yeah. That seems to be the moment where they really committed to we have to we have to outdo ourselves in every movie. Like I think that's a, a transitional one as opposed to like a normal stunt. But it's like, no, no, Tom Cruise is hanging off of this ridiculously tall building. That's really him. On some level, they're really doing this. Yes. You know, that's nuts. But I honestly... The final action sequence and fallout with the helicopter and all that, that to me, that is up there with any stunt sequence I can think of in film. It's its really amazing. I think you might be right, man. I think that might be the one because it just keeps one-upping itself with exactly Right? Um, you can't believe it's not. You can't believe that somehow he's still fighting and we're still going and it's not over. Like, Jesus Christ. I mean, that sequence is amazing. And, and, and by the way, the fight scene with him and Henry Cavill in the bathroom is all fucking great. Fight Excellent. Yeah, you're yeah, right. You're right. I think that's the same film where they where they drop down, right, to try to stop the water and all that. Isn't that the, that one as well? Where he might drown yeah. spinning around. So that one's full of some great, great action sequences and stunts. I agree with you, and I also think the the helicopter train one from the first film. I think mm. that's second for me in terms of stunt. The plane is fine. These other stunts are really uh, the the motorcycle one was cool for sure in Dead Reckoning, but to me, it's about the construction of the stunt. And right. I agree with you that that ending is incredible because it just one ups itself, as I said. But the train with the helicopter thing is Jean Reno just completely like you know, freaking out about that whole thing and Tom Cruise looking so believably like he's on top of that train and how right. close that blade comes to his throat. Sure. And and you have the you have the button on top of it with the train conductor passing out comically when he looks up. So I, I thought all of, I think that's my second favorite stunt, but I agree with you on the first two. That's it. That's yeah, there, there's also I think the construction of the train sequence in Dead Reckoning with the train hanging off the cliff. Oh yeah. That's all really, really well done. That is such a tense, tense scene that so well constructed as well. Yeah, agreed. Well, um, well, I mean, I think we've talked about the whole franchise. Is there anything? Is there? Do you have any questions? Do you have anything you want to say about it? Do you have any uh, things you want to discuss, Steve? Well, I, I'm curious for you. Which which of the films did you find just most stressful, or like where you just were really concerned or confused? You know, which I think concerned and confused is something that goes on a fair amount in Mission Impossible movies. No. <laughs> How do you think I feel? Concerned, confused? Uh, <laughs> um, no, I think three is my most stressful. I think three from beginning to end is my most stressful because the other films I'm in awe of what's going on. Like when he fights Michael Nyquist uh, during that whole sandstorm and the car park, that is, that's a brutal, those are brutal sequences, right? Right. But in no way am I, like, stressed out. It's more a matter of, oh, my God, wow, wow, wow. With three, I am stressed out from beginning to end because that's also low-key. Maybe my second favorite opening might be my first, depending on, you know, what, when you catch me. Because Kerry Russell and Tom Cruise back-to-back doing the things that they're doing, it's great to see Kerry do that. It, it kind of launched Kerry again. I think the Americans came right after yeah. that. And so she was great in that. 
and the way she dies with him like begging for her to hold on and both and then the click and it's so sudden there's no kind of emotion to it it's just done it is so brutal so that everything that happens afterwards is seen through that prism and davian is so ruthless and michelle michelle monahan is such sweet i love her as an actress she's so sweet she's easily likable yeah automatically connected to her and you care about her so there are real stakes and I, you know, when I watch movies, I don't really care. The world's going to blow up. I, show me great action sequence. I don't really care because it's not my world. It's not real life. But when you make me connect with a human person in a film, then I get viscerally connected and I feel the tension. And I think that whole film, and I think it's the unique ending where she helps him survive the villain with yeah. the Billy Crudup sequence, which I think is fantastic. And so for me, that that's the film that I'm, on edge with through the entire film. Um, Concern has to be fallout because for a number of reasons. One, we were pushing the boundaries of how far this franchise could go and putting in Henry Cavill, putting in uh, uh, Angela Bassett and sliding Baldwin back in. I was like, in my mind, I'm like, this. there's a lot going on here. And I, I remember I had to watch like the film two or three times to finally put everything in place. So I think that's the film that challenges me the most is fallout. I I couldn't agree more about three, and it's the one that's genuinely emotional. Not like I'm stressed, but like, oh, wow, this is really heavy things going on. And I just want to highlight, because I think you made such a great point, is the tendency with action films is that we go, okay, last time we threatened to to blow up uh, a school with 500 people. So therefore, this time we have to be threatening to blow up a city. Right. And then, well, this time we had to blow up the world, you know, because that's the because only through upping the stakes will people be more involved. And that is totally wrong, is that Tom Cruise's desire to save the life of his wife, one person is way more emotional and involving, you know, it goes to the the Stalin quote of, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. It's not like the making it bigger doesn't actually make it more dramatic. If you're in your house uh, with Lindley and you hear someone break into your house and you know they have a gun, that's that's a hundred percent maximum stress. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you don't you, you don't we don't need to make that bigger to right. make it more dramatic or intense. And like this is a thing, whereas you know Hollywood tends to be, if you know we blow up this floor of a building in the, the first Die Hard, well we have to build and blow up something even bigger in the next one and then even bigger. You know, and now we're into Marvel movies where like the whole universe is being attacked. And it's like, no, you have to make me care about one person or one moment or one thing. If if I'm emotionally involved, that's what the biggest thing is. And that's what three has going for. Yeah. 100%. 100%. All right. And and I want to ask you this. um, What is your favorite Tom Cruise performance in all these movies? What's it's the, the, it's the, it, we just said it. It's three. him crying in three. There's no, I don't think there's any. And like I said, I think cocky Tom Cruise, we had to get past in sort of one and two. And then he sort of settles in. I, I think he's, I think he's really good in Fallout too. I think there's a lot of stuff yeah. going on in that one. Yeah. 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 Especially because at the end, he like, he kind of like accepts that, you know, Michelle's happy and, he, and she's got a new man and he's happy for her, which I think is really yeah. progressive again. That's another part of this. I think, and I should wrap up with this. There's, there's a nice progressiveness in this series. I, mean, I don't mean in a political way. I just mean that there's more humanity with Ethan Hunt throughout 
this series than maybe in any other franchise that you've action franchise that you find. John Wick never finds another girlfriend in in all four of those movies. Right, his his wife dies, he is connected to his wife. They kill the dog, and that's what launches everything. Right, but he never finds someone else to really kind of have that connection with. Um, and certainly Halle Berry pops in, all these other people pop in, but it doesn't with with Ethan Hunt. There is this connection here that he has with these people. And I think this is where um, I enjoy about it. Like he cares about his friends and then cares about his wife and then lets her go. And then is okay with her movie. Like there's not a lot of men, men who would like, you don't see that in a Schwarzenegger film franchise or a Stallone film franchise where they go, you know what? It's okay that you didn't end up with the alpha lead of the franchise. I bless your new relationship. That doesn't happen. And so, but a progressive, I mean, like, um, male progressive, like it's, it's not toxicity. It's not male toxicity. He's a much more advanced, emotionally advanced and emotionally intelligent male as a lead. And I like that uh, element to, um, the Mission Impossible franchises, uh, Fincher franchise and Ethan Hunt's character as well. I got, I'm going to say a weird thing and it's just a thought that's popped in my brain just now. And I, I, and, and I'm thinking it through as I'm saying it, but yeah, yeah. I actually think, particularly as the character evolves, as you say, is that is that Ethan Hunt really, really cares about his team. Yes. Really cares about them and wants to protect them. And really, really cares about the world and wants to save the world because he cares about it. I think, this is again, I just had this thought, that yeah. Ethan Hunt, I don't know that James Bond is as moral a person as Ethan Hunt. Yeah. I think, I think James Bond wants to win. That's what he's about. And yes, he's fighting in general, we would say, for the good guys. Sure. And therefore, him winning is good. But it isn't, I don't get the sense that he's desperately trying. I think Ethan Hunt is desperately trying to protect the people he's trying to protect yeah. and is willing to put himself through anything to save the lives of the people that he loves. And whereas James Bond is like, I'm not going to lose. Right, right. I think right. it's a different attitude. I think it's a great point. Yeah. Even the Jason Bourne situation, even Jason Bourne doesn't have that necessary element to him, even with the connections he has with the people in his um, in his sphere. It's more about how this mysterious organization, he's still trying to figure out his all of his connections as right. mysterious organization. But in, in the Mission Impossible situation, it's a completely different. And you're right. It is. This doesn't feel like Ethan Hunt is working some shit out in all of these missions, because it feels that way with Bond most of the time. And you don't catch him sleeping with 500 women. That's not his thing. You genuinely believe that there's an earnestness in Ethan Hunt that he wants to save the world, and he wants to save his team. Even though the team members change film to film, the dedication to those team members is 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 always the same. And of course, it's a little bit higher with with Benji and Luther, Ving Rhames and, uh, and um, Simon Pegg. Uh, but Overall, you're right. He cares about his team. He wants to make sure they survive. And he's willing to sacrifice anything about himself in order to make sure that happens. And that extends to the world. That's an excellent point, Steve. I had not kind of gone farther out with that thought, but that is true. He absolutely, you believe that he really cares about the world and wants to save it. And that's such a unique element. And again, the progressiveness of him as a man, as emotionally intelligent as and mature that he is as a man, that that matters. The world matters. Saving people, no matter who they are, what their beliefs are, what region of the world they're in, it matters to me to save the world because humanity matters. 
And that's a good thing. That's a good message to come out of that franchise. Like it's it. sort of anti-movie star, you know, in, in an odd mm. way, I think, because what the whole point is that my life is actually less important. Yes. Than these other things I'm trying to do. Right. It, right. It, I, I j and I, you know, I love Daniel Craig as Bond. I, mm -hmm. I love Sean Connery as Bond. I mean, you know, I, I, I like, have liked many of the Bond movies, but Bond movies are about Bond. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, as opposed to, because the other thing I think in the way these movies are structured, not the TV show, mm -hmm. which is that it's not that he goes, I'm going to be a guy that goes out and saves the world. Right. It's right. what it is, is that I am the only guy right here, right now. I don't, he doesn't particularly want to do these things. It's, right. I, I mean, there's so many moments where it's like, fuck, I have to drive my car off this cliff. I have yep. to jump this motorcycle off because, because that is the only way to save the world. If I do not do, I, I, I the odds are I'm going to die, but I have to do that because that's what's necessary to, to solve this problem. Yeah. A hundred percent, dude. A hundred percent. Um, well, there you go, man. I think that's, oh, we should hit the streamlabs. Sorry. I don't want to wrap up too far. We had a couple of streamlabs that have come through. Justin Toner says, hi, guys, really enjoy the discussion of the Mission Impossible franchise, which I've come to really enjoy over time. I liked the first one and was lukewarm on two and three, but enjoyed everything since Ghost Protocol. I thought Dead Reckoning one was good, not great. Atwell shined, though. Um, uh, where are we going next, man? Like, do you see Tom Cruise said that he was essentially retiring after these two, but now he's changed his mind. And he says, uh, well, if Harrison Ford can do Indiana Jones into his 80s. I want to do Ethan Hunt into his 80s. We're hitting the limit, aren't we, Steve? Or do you anticipate they'll keep going into his 70s? I mean, the dude seems to be in great shape. Um, and He's getting as, older, though. You can see the wrinkles now when you couldn't before. Oh, yeah. Um, as you know, as you know, athletes don't always tend to retire when they should. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder... The, the thing that makes it hard is the ridiculously huge stunt right that tom cruise yeah. is actually doing himself um but i so pe people probably wouldn't agree with this but i actually would love so my objection to that very first mission impossible mm -hmm. film when i was in film school was they didn't do what's in the tv show which i still would like to see them do because every every you you watch the tv show yeah of course yeah i love mission impossible the, so the way the TV show worked, which is really different for the movies, is yeah. they had they were running their plan, mm -hmm. and they ran their plan for the whole TV show, and you didn't understand what the plan was, and in the end they won. Yeah. And what the movies are, all of them, I think, is we are scrambling because the plan is broken, and we are behind, and we're right. trying to catch up. Right. So I would love to see them actually do. We're not. We haven't been disavowed. The. The government hasn't been blown up. We're not running for our lives. It's like, no, we have a really smart... Because what I love about Mission Impossible TV show is it's really about con artists yeah. in a lot of ways, is that we are going to manipulate people into doing things that they don't want to do because they don't understand the crazy way that we're fooling them. And the movies have elements of that. But I would like to see them just do that, which wouldn't be as emphasizing on the big giant stunts because you're not as desperate and it's more watching how far ahead and how smart our characters are to manipulate the bad guys. I would love to see that kind of movie. I don't know if anyone I, else would. I think I would love to see that kind of movie. I just don't know if Paramount would ever greenlight that version or that approach to it because right. they seem to just getting, because these films get longer and longer every installment yeah. since 
since the second one they've gotten or third one they've gotten longer and longer each time this this is the longest one that just happened the two hours and 45 minute one which a lot of people felt could have been cut at least 20 minutes um so you look at that sequence you look at that situation you wonder well can you go backward would the studio allow you to go backward and i think maybe you could if as tom cruise gets into his 70s uh and if we're all still around to see it gets into his 70s maybe a more straight-laced approach uh would be the way to go and if he's passing the torch a more straight-laced approach could really work because he's got the plan and this person really stands out in the plan and executing the plan and that's who you kind of hand over the ethan hunt moniker to for them to take over you know so i don't know but i i think you make an excellent point and it's kind of surprising to me that there hasn't been a mission impossible series come out since that failed one in the 80s but come out to kind of coincide with the movies like a with someone else in the lead or someone else doing a part of it. I was I just thinking the same thing. What? Cause it's a, yeah, it, it's a great concept for a TV show. And can, can we just for a moment, yeah. Give some credit to Lucille ball because both star Trek and mission impossible happen because of Lucille ball. They're both Desilu shows. They both happen within a year of each other. I think star Trek starts a year or, or I mean the cage is a couple of, several years earlier, but yeah, I think the pilot for Mission Impossible is like a year after the Star Trek pilot. So yeah. they're making those two shows on stages next door to each other. Yeah. And of course, Nimoy after Star Trek goes and replaces Martin Landau. I mean, that's a great cast of that original show. And I would, it's a perfect show to make today. Right. It would be so much fun as a TV show. Yeah. Real quick. Here's the people in the original, right? Stephen Hill. That's right. The old law and order attorney, the head oh. DA, he was a, a series regular on the Mission Impossible series. Later on, Barbara Bain was the uh, yep. the originals. Greg Morris was one Love of the Greg originals. Morris. Peter Lupus, Peter Graves, Martin Landau, as you mentioned, Leonard Nimoy. And then we get into Lee Merriweather, who, of course, was Catwoman. Right. Leslie Ann Warren. Wow. Sam Elliott, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I didn't remember that. Linda Day George and Barbara Anderson are kind of like towards the tail end when it uh, ran out of steam in the mid in the mid 70s 1973 uh when it finally stopped so yeah that's a good list of actors it's hard yeah. to find a bad actor in that list so yeah so it's good to see that being a part of this thing as well um all right well there you go oh we have one more sorry stream lab here from justin toner also said i also wanted to say i love the review of wolf of wall street i finally watched it before listening was not disappointed Sorry I missed the advisory board meeting Friday. Hope to make the next one. Listen to the audio. Excited for October's slate. Yeah, we should wrap up, Steve, with any announcements that we want to make here uh, about the uh, about the podcast, about our show. What should we tell people who are watching and listening to us? Well, as Justin mentioned, we did just have our advisory board meeting. It was another fantastic conversation, and mm -hmm. the board was super helpful with ideas for where the show is going. We put out, as we do, and this is for a dollar a month on Patreon, you get access to the schedule. So the whole October schedule is now out on Patreon and you can check that out. And we're also doing something, something we, it's a request that we have made from the advisory board, which is that the the suggestion came like, we should put out audio clips of, of yes. our shows, some of the highlight moments, and we can put them out on social media. And what I kind of said, and I think you felt the same way was like, can you please tell us what the good audio clips are? Because I'm burnt out after editing this show. So we'll put it out to all of so you true. as well. <laughs> if you hear a moment in the latest episode of The Cinephiles and you say, hey, there's 30 seconds here or a minute here, 
send us the time code and we will put that clip out as an audio clip for people to listen to. And we also discuss, we might have a new video shorts that we're talking yes. about doing. I don't know if you want to go into any detail about that, but it is something we are developing as another thing to do right here on our YouTube channel. Yeah, we're kicking around doing these like one minute reviews of current films uh, where we um, watch a film that is currently out and then Steve and I put a timer on and we try to give our thoughts on the movie within a minute. And we want to take advantage of shorts and TikTok and all these places we can go to post stuff like that. So that's kind of our approach to that. And of course, there's going to be weeks where there isn't a new movie coming out that either one of us wants to see. So we'll take suggestions from some of our patrons about movies, maybe in the past or maybe yeah, or yeah from the past, but movies that we've seen, maybe we don't have to see them again and we can toss out our one minute review. And those could be within the 10 minute or 10 year time frame. So maybe those films that you guys have wanted us to talk about, we won't give the full Cinephiles treatment yet, but we'll give you about a minute tease of what we think about uh, that film or maybe a subject connected to one of those films, something like that. Well, and, and I think, too, another thing that we can do is challenge ourselves to, okay, we just did The Wolf of Wall Street. All right, John and Steve, do one minute on The Wolf of Wall Street. What did we learn from our conversations with mm. each other? You know, And so now if you want to check out the whole thing, you can go check out our five, six hours worth of discussion on it. By the way, speaking of this, this is just Cinephile's business, which is I have a short idea, Yeah, which is I am uh, currently listening to the new Michael Lewis book on Sam Bankman-Fried. Oh, which yeah, the, the trial starts this week. Yes. it's It just started. Yeah. And there are so many parallels between him and Belfort, Wolf mm -hmm. of Wall Street guy, that I would like to do a short. And what's so bizarre about it, they are the entirely opposite person, mm. you know, from the you know, complete scumbaggery of, of Jordan Belfort yeah. and the sex and the drugs to a person who was no drugs, no sex, drove a Prius or something like, you know, like just total opposite. And yet they all, they both ended up swindling whether on purpose or not millions in, in Bankman Fried's case, billions of dollars. And so I think it'd be a really interesting conversation to compare these very different people that ended up doing a very similar thing. Why not? There was a great article. There's a great article in The Ringer up now, uh, talking about how difficult it was for them to find jurors for this trial, and how many people tried to get out of it by claiming they had no idea of cryptocurrency and couldn't possibly learn it in a trial. And so it's fascinating to read as it lays the groundwork for this trial that's about to start or starting. Uh, yeah. In that. So yeah, I'm down. Um, but what do you think about uh, calling those one minute things uh, a mini or mini instead of a short? It'd be a mini or a shotgun. Done. Mini? Okay. Cinephiles minis. Done. Yeah. Done and done. Um, all right. Well, there you go. That's our discussion on the Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible movie and the Mission Impossible franchise as a whole. We hope you enjoyed it and had some fun with us. Thanks for joining us. To the 50 of you who joined us here live, we appreciate it. To the thousands of you who are watching or listening, I'm sorry, listening or watching later, we appreciate that as well. Steve, uh, what do we have to tell them as we wrap up here? Well, of course, if you're not already subscribed to uh, the Cinephiles YouTube page, please do so. Also like this video if you can. It's right below. It's just a click of the mouse. And I really am, I, I honestly would be a little disappointed in you if you don't feel that you could click that like button. I just, I mean, I thought we had a relationship oh, here and oh it just- Oh my God. <laughs> um, you know, and, and really, maybe you should go on Apple Podcasts and leave a review while you're at it and you could subscribe yeah. there as well. We've already talked about for a dollar a month, you can find out every month's schedule 
for the cinephiles at the beginning of the month. Um, and, and for $5, you get ad-free versions of the show for $10, you get combined episodes and you can make short suggestions. And then of course, at the $25 level, you are joining our advisory board. That's a monthly meeting where we talk about what's happening and it's been so much fun. So that's yeah. patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to buy, you know what? I should make a page and I will put up all of the mission impossible movies Ooh, yeah. on a page so that you can buy or stream them right through cinephiles.net. I will do that. Maybe this afternoon or maybe it'll be tomorrow morning. We'll see, but I'll get that up right away. So visit cinephiles.net. And of course, I am SR Morris on Twitter and SR Morris on one on Instagram. Yeah, they're all available in 4K. I think they've all been put into a collection for now. And then Dead Reckoning will be coming out soon as well. So great, great. So I own all of them. I love those movies so much. Thank you all so much for hanging out with us. Uh, you know, for Steve uh, uh, Morris, I'm John Roca. We appreciate it. You guys are the best. We love you madly. And we'll talk to you next time with another brand new live episode of the cinephiles peace until then ready for a career in behavioral health earn your online degree at herzing university choose from health and human services psychology or social work programs gain the skills to work coordinate and manage nonprofits. secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online masters of social work let us help you become a social change agent your future starts now at herzing university text health to 85109 that's health to 85109 or visit herzing.edu